Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Now that you've seen the historical defenders of the kingdom faith, it's time to turn our attention to those who fought against it and get the rest of the story. Over the next three lectures, you'll learn the main reasons why Christianity rejected the kingdom message of the Bible and replaced it with going to heaven or hell at death. First up, we'll take a tour of how the ancients thought about creation and the universe, giving special attention to how Plato and Philo influenced Christian thinking. This is Lecture 11 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Lecture 11, The Kingdom is Too Crude. This is Lecture 11, Rejecting the Kingdom, Part 1. So there are actually three parts of this investigation into why did some early Christians reject the kingdom, three main reasons, the first of which is they rejected it because it was too crude. So that's our focus here is to look at, I have four quotes from early Christians who did not like the kingdom of God idea in which they talk about the kingdom as being unsophisticated, crude, basically unworthy of God. And the first of which is a man named Origen, of Alexandria, who flourished in the third century, died in the year 253. Because of this, it happens that certain of the simpler Christians, since they do not know how to distinguish and to keep separate what in the divine scriptures must be allotted to the inner man and what to the outer man, misled by the similarities in the designations, have turned themselves to certain foolish stories and vain fictions, so that even after the resurrection, they believe that corporeal foods must be used and drink taken, not only from that true vine which lives forever, but also from vines and fruits of wood. That's origin of Alexandria in his commentary on the Song of Songs. This is the prologue. And notice some key elements here. Origen says that certain of the simpler Christians are getting fooled into believing in the kingdom. And notice also that he says that the idea, like especially the kind of idea we read in Papias of the 10,000 clusters and all that, he calls that sort of thinking foolish stories and vain fictions because after the resurrection, you think you're going to have corporeal foods. Corporeal foods is actual physical foods as opposed to spiritual foods. Corporeal is from the word corpus, which means body. In other words, bodily foods, foods that are real, as opposed to the drink taken from the true vine, right? That's talking about John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine. Uh, You are the branches and that sort of thing. So he's always looking to spiritualize things. And he's like, look, if if you actually believe in this renewed world hypothesis, then you're believing in foolish and vain fictions, and you're one of those simpler Christians. Next, we have Dionysius of Alexandria. Dionysius of Alexandria. 
he dies around the year 265 and this is a little bit more of that same quote that we looked at last time regarding Nepos. Remember that? Nepos, the guy in Egypt that believed in the kingdom. So Dionysius of Alexandria, we read, but since they bring forward a certain work of Nepos on which they especially rely is irrefutably proving that the kingdom of Christ will be on the earth, we should examine and correct whatever appears to be unsoundly composed. So he's going to say that Nepos's book about the kingdom of Christ coming on earth is unsoundly composed. But when a book is published which seems most convincing to some and does not allow our simpler brethren, there it is again, dumb people believe in the kingdom, to have a high and noble thoughts either regarding the glorious and truly divine coming of our Lord or our resurrection from the dead or our gathering together unto him and being like to him, but persuade them to hope for the small and mortal and such as are of the present in the kingdom of God, then it is necessary that we too argue with our brother Nepos as if he were present. Nepos had already died, I think, and he's writing a book against Nepos later on. So he's like, I have to argue with him as if he's present because all these people, all these simple-minded, primitive, unsophisticated, uneducated Christians in Egypt actually believe in this kingdom idea. So this is an excerpt from Eusebius's History of the Church, 724, where he's quoting Dionysius. All right. Now we have Eusebius himself. Eusebius is the powerhouse historian, the greatest church historian after Luke. Of course, Luke wrote a history of Jesus called the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, which is a history of the church. Eusebius writes the second history of the church, the second great history of the church, in his book, Historia Ecclesiastica, which translates to English as history of the church, history of the church. <laughs> or church history. So that's Eusebius. He says, among these, he, Papias, says that there will be a period of about a thousand years after the resurrection of the dead, when the kingdom of Christ will be established on this earth in material form. I suppose he got these ideas through a perverse reading of the accounts of the apostles, not realizing that these were expressed by them mystically in figures. For he appears to be a man of very little intelligence, to speak from judging his books, judging from his books. But he was responsible for the great number of church writers after him holding the same opinion as himself, who proposed in their support the antiquity of the man, as, for instance, Irenaeus and whoever else appeared to hold similar views. So Papias himself basically just got it wrong, He's reading the Apostles, he's reading the Gospels, and he thinks that there's going to be this kingdom, and Papias, you can't, you can't trust Papias. He's a man of very little intelligence. Eusebius is actually a man of very great intelligence, so he could make that sort of a claim. But look, once again, the kingdom is associated with being uneducated or being crude. Then last of all, we have Augustine of Hippo. Hippo is a place in North Africa. And he dies around the year 430 and says that the same evangelist has spoken of these two resurrections in his book, which is called The Apocalypse, but in such a way that some of us have not understood the first of the two, thereby have turned into some ridiculous fancies. So what he's saying here is that 
Christians are reading the book of Revelation and the part that talks about the first resurrection, and they're interpreting it in a way that makes them sound ridiculous. Those who, because of this passage in this book, have suspected that the first resurrection is future and bodily, this opinion will be somewhat tolerable. This opinion would be so much tolerable. You just hear like the snobbishness of, of Augustine and his, all of his education and sophistication. This opinion would be somewhat tolerable if the delights of that Sabbath to be enjoyed by the saints were, through the presence of the Lord, of a spiritual kind. For we too were at one time of this opinion. That's the part where I told you when he was younger, he used to believe in a literal kingdom and that the resurrection was future and bodily. Look, if the resurrection is not bodily, it's not a resurrection. Any of the scholars today would tell you that, right? Especially N.T. Wright. He goes on, so that was from the City of God 27.1. He goes on, and this is from one of his sermons, 242.5. If we were to tell those pagan philosophers that our bodies are going to be victorious on a new earth, and not in heaven. Okay, that's the kingdom idea, right? Is that not the kingdom of idea? Our bodies victorious on a new earth and not heaven. Beautiful summary, right? But he's like, if we tell the other pagan philosophers this, we, we will be speaking boldly and rashly, even against the faith. For we ought to believe that we are going to have such bodies that we shall be wherever we wish, whenever we wish. Teleportation. Come on, man. Teleportation sounds ridiculous to me. But yet, he's, he's sort of embarrassed. He's like, mm, this resurrection idea, that's, that's not going to fly with the pagan philosophers. They're going to make fun of that. They're going to make fun of us if we say we believe that. Come on, guys. That kingdom idea, it's just too crude. All right, so once again, we had these four witnesses that I showed you. Origin of Alexandria, Dionysius of Alexandria, Eusebius of Caesarea, Augustine of Hippo, all from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, who all associate believing in the kingdom with a lack of sophistication. Now, here's the question, now that I found this evidence, right, in the research. Here's the question, why? Why in the world is that obvious to them that living in a body forever on a new earth is unsophisticated. That doesn't follow for me. Is that, is that obviously clear to you? Like, does it make sense? So that's the question I intend to answer now. Hopefully it's a question worth answering because I'm going to spend some time working on it. <laughs> so what we need to do in order to tune our ears to hear why they think this way is look at ancient cosmology. Cosmology is your view of the cosmos, what you think about the universe, right? So ancient cosmology is very different than modern cosmology. Our cosmology is we believe that if you go up and up and up and up, what's going to happen? The air is going to thin out. Eventually you get into this place called outer space. It's a funny name, right? Outer space. And in outer space, there's nothing, right? There's no air. There's no water or like ice or weird structures, right? Like it's just like empty space. That's what outer space is. That's how we think of it. And then like you go up high enough, you see, the, oh, there's a moon. But like from our cosmology, we would say, well, the moon 
does orbit the Earth, but the Earth orbits the Sun, right? And you have the typical helio heliocentric model, right? And we know that you can go billions of light years out, right? That's our cosmology. Their cosmology is totally different, totally different. And I'm not talking about Christians necessarily. I'm talking about ancient people. So what was the rationale among educated Christians that caused them to regard living forever on a renewed earth intellectually offensive? That's the question. Now, in order to get at that question, we need to look at Plato's Timaeus. This is one of the most influential books of all time regarding the creation of the universe. The two most influential books for Christians are the Timaeus and Genesis, as far as what they believe about creation. So, we need to do some business with Plato's book, the Timaeus. He wrote around the year 360 BC. Uh, what, he, what he talks about in this book is this eternal realm of immutable forms and ideas. So you have this realm, the eternal realm always existed naturally, and everything in the eternal realm doesn't change. Okay, that's this word immutable. Actually, the word immutable means can't mutate right? Can't change. So anything in that realm can't change. Now what happens is there's this character, probably doesn't have two arms and two legs, but I don't know how else to draw a character. Uh, we'll call him the Demiurge, because that's what they call him. And the Demiurge says, well, I'm going to create this, this other realm. We'll call it, we call it the universe, right? And the universe includes everything. It includes the stars, right? It includes the, uh, the planets, right? And it certainly includes the earth and the sun. You know, the universe, everything. And the Demiurge decides, well, this doesn't exist yet. So he looks to the eternal realm and he makes copies of what he sees there. And that's how we get the universe. So the universe is a copy of the blueprint of the eternal realm. However, in the universe, things are mutable, especially the human body. The seasons change, the wind blows, you get hungry, you eat, then you're not hungry, right? You can go from one place to another. Everything in our experience includes change or involves change, right? Everything in our experience involves change, doesn't it? We're constantly changing. I mean, if you want to just sit there and not change at all, could you even do it? Nope. Because your mental state would at least change, right? I mean, just sit there and focus on one thought. How long can we even do that? I mean, it's really hard. Like maybe for like a, a superstar Buddhist monk who's like trained his mind over many years to be able to like focus on one thought, maybe then you could do it, right? But what kind of way is that to live? I don't know. That's just my opinion. So anyhow, Plato's Timaeus talks about this eternal realm. There's this creator. He makes a copy. And because this world is a copy of that world, our world is by nature inferior. It's inferior. And so there's a distinction between that he makes between what always exists having no beginning. This is a quote from the Timaeus 28a. What always exists having no beginning. In other words, something eternal, something that doesn't change. And 
he says, what is always becoming but never being, right? Something that comes into existence, something that changes, it never really exists because it's subject to change, right? And so this is a little line from the Timaeus 29c where he says, as being is to becoming, so is truth to belief. So being he associates with truth. Truth is the fact of the matter. Being is this stable, unchanging mode of existence. Becoming, however, you're always becoming. You became, right? You were born, and then you're in the process of becoming. You're becoming older. You're becoming shorter or taller or skinnier or fatter or stronger or weaker or tired or more tired. So you're becoming, and that's like belief, right? Beliefs change. So at being is, is associated with truth, becoming is belief. And so he says, the creator, it, the demiurge, right, is neither malevolent nor incompetent, but a good craftsman. This is what he says in the book of Timaeus, who makes the best possible world. Now we watch a movie. Nice. Short. This is the allegory of the cave. Imagine prisoners that have spent their entire lives chained deep inside a cave. They have been chained so that they cannot see behind themselves and they are forced to stare endlessly at the cave wall in front of them. Behind them a fire is burning and between the prisoners and the fire is a raised walkway. Now imagine that each day, a menagerie of objects crosses the walkway. Animals and people carrying their wares to market. Their shapes create an intricate shadow play on the wall in front of the prisoners. This is the only world that the prisoners have ever known. the shadows, and the echoes of unseen objects. Now, imagine that the prisoner is released. After some time adjusting to the blinding light, the freed prisoner will begin to experience the world outside of the cave for the very first time and it is like nothing he could have ever imagined. With his new perception of the world, the man will of course want to return to his friends to share his incredible discoveries. But the prisoners cannot recognize their old friend. He appears as all things do. His voice is a distorted echo, and his body is a grotesque shadow. They cannot understand his fantastic stories of the world outside of the cave. To them, it will never exist. This, of course, does not make the world outside of the cave any less real. So the 
allegory of the cave that Plato tells is from a different book is the idea that what you, everything you know is just the shadows on the wall. That's this world. You don't, you don't think anything of it because that's all you've ever known. You're like a prisoner in a cave. And the one who gets out of the cave, of course, is the philosopher. So what does the philosopher do? The, the philosopher closes himself off from all his external surroundings and meditates on the true reality of the universe. And he looks within to find the answers. Much more like Buddhism than an atheist scientist, right? Uh, it's m much more meditative. And so what does the philosopher do? He imagines what the world is really like. And so if he's any good in his mind, he can escape the cave and see in his mind's eye the real world. And then he goes to try to explain it to others and they're just like, man, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about because he just appears like anything else. And then when you die, you actually do get to see the true reality. So maybe that's when you leave the cave is when you die. I don't know. But the point is, everything in our world is this shadow of this true eternal realm, which is superior. So how does Plato's Timaeus end up affecting so much? Well, it gets into the head of this Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria. Philo Alexandria lives about the same time as the Apostle Paul. He dies in the year 50, which is actually before Paul dies. Again, now Philo is a Jewish author. He's not Christian. He significantly influenced later Christian thinkers. In fact, it is the Christians who preserve the writings of Philo and who read the writings of Philo. So even though he's not a Christian himself, he's influential among patristic thinkers. That's early Christian thinkers. He reworked Plato's old creation story, which is called the Timaeus, in to fit with the Genesis account, right? So you've got, you've got Genesis over here, you've got Timaeus over there, and you've got Philo, and he writes a book called On the Creation of the World. Latin name, De Epificio Mundi. All right, so you take Genesis, you take Timaeus, you mix them together, and you get Philo's On the Creation of the World. Hugely influential book uh, among later Christian philosophers and theologians. He wanted to resolve the tensions between his own biblical account and the one composed by Plato. So in uh, another place, in a book called The Laws, 194, he says, The earth and water have been assigned the lowest situation in the universe. Interesting. The earth and water. Like, have you ever thought about earth and water and you're like, oh man, they're so low. They're so, so pathetic. No, like whoever, who would ever think of that? Well, if you think that they're in this lower realm that is subject to constant change and that that's inherently inferior, then you would look down upon material stuff like earth and water. Educated people of faith in the first century were under pressure to conform to Greek ways of thinking about things. Um, and Philo is evidence of that. So Timaeus is an example of a Greek way of thinking about creation. Now we move on to look at the Gnostics. Now the Gnostics come in the second century, so that's about 100 years after Philo. And what they do is they borrow 
heavily from the Timaeus and Genesis. And instead of creating a, uh, basically what Philo does is he allegorizes Genesis to make it fit with the Timaeus. What the Gnostics do is even more interesting. They have their own myth. And what they do is they combine all three of these together and that becomes the Gnostic creation story, right? So the Gnostic is pulling from their own mythology about these weird creatures that existed and there was this great battle, or not a great battle, but a great rebellion. And from the uh, Gnostic myth, the Demiurge, he's evil. In Plato's Timaeus, the Demiurge is good. In the Gnostic version of it, he's evil. <laughs> So they borrow from the Timaeus, they're much more dualistic in the sense that they say it's a good spiritual realm versus an evil material realm. In Timaeus, they never say that the universe is evil. They just say it's inferior, it's a copy, it's always changing, you know, but they don't say it's evil. The Gnostics are going to go one step further and say it's evil. For the Gnostics, there is a God who is much greater than the Demiurge, and that God is called the One or the Monad. And that God is so much superior to the craftsman, the creator of the universe. And in fact, he never even wanted the universe to be made because he likes the spiritual world. And so he says about the one, or the Gnostics say about the one in their book, The First Thought, they say the unchangeable voice, unique, incorruptible, uh, who gives instruction about the coming end of the realm and we also read in that book, the beginning of the coming realm, which does not experience change. So the idea is that the one is the unchangeable voice, right? The high God above everyone else is radically immutable. Absolutely no change ever. Totally transcendent. Not here. The one God from the Gnostic perspective is not here on earth. He's in a different realm far away. And, but he gives instruction about the coming end of the realm, the end of the earthly realm, the universe, and the beginning of the coming realm. And what's the coming realm? What's the goal of salvation? To not experience change. That's the goal. The few who have received knowledge, gnosis, are the only ones worthy of thinking of the unchangeable eternal realm. So, and there's a lot more to the Gnostic story about Sophia. I'm not going to get into that. The true seed are able to trample underfoot death, and they will ascend into the limitless light where this posterity belongs. And so from a Gnostic perspective, there are certain people who have the spark of the divine within them, and once they realize that, they have to gain knowledge of themselves, of their true origin, and then when they die... They get released from their body and they can travel up to the eternal realm. And eventually this whole universe is going to get destroyed, completely destroyed. And then in the second and third centuries, there are tons of philosophers who held to Plato's idea of a higher immutable realm, superior to this lower transient world. And so Plato's cosmology played a role in thinkers like Gaius, Albinus, Maximus of Tyre, Severus, Numenius, Harpocration of Argos, Plotinus, and Porphyry, especially the significant one here is definitely Plotinus, because Plotinus is the one who writes and 
really gets Neoplatonism going. Neoplatonism is a way of understanding Plato and his writings. The true founder of, of Neoplatonism, so there's this guy named Ammonius, and he's the technical founder of Neoplatonism, and he teaches Plotinus and Origen of Alexandria, who's a Christian, by the way. And then Plotinus teaches Porphyry. Porphyry means purple in Greek. <laughs> it's like you find it in the um, book of Exodus where they're talking about the tabernacle and there's like purple drapes and stuff. <laughs> Anyhow, so Ammonius is the founder of Neoplatonism, teaches Plotinus, who writes down the sayings of Ammonius, and then Porphyry writes down a biography of Plotinus, talking about like what Plotinus was like. And uh, Porphyry was really anti-Christian, really hated the Christians. I think he was also a vegetarian, so watch those vegetarians. Um, but anyhow, my point is just to say that Plato is hugely influential among non-Christians, among Christians, among Jews in that educated uh, realm of people. Now, it's important to realize it's not like people are going to receive a Hellenistic education, and that's like a thing, okay? Either you're educated or you're not educated. To be educated is to study Greek philosophy. There's no difference in the Greco-Roman world. I mean, outside of that, well, in, in Israel or in the land of Judah, right, education means to study Torah. That's different, right? But outside of that, generally speaking, to be educated in the ancient world is to study Homer, is to study Plato, is to study these different kinds of Greek philosophy. Paula Fredrickson, a modern scholar, writes, in the imagined architecture of the ancient cosmos, the Earth stood at the center of seven planetary spheres. Does that make sense? So you have the center is the Earth, and then around the Earth you have all these planets going around. At the furthest remove, spatially and ontologically, from the regions of increasing stability and harmony that stretched out from the moon upward toward the planets and the realm of the fixed stars. Such a worldview is prejudiced in favor of the upper-worldly and spiritual. So when you look at the cosmology, you have the Earth in the middle, and then you have these different planetary spheres around it. And then around that, you have all the fixed stars, okay? And so the higher up you go, the more stable and unchanging reality is. So that's why she says, such a worldview is prejudiced in favor of the upper worldly and spiritual. Here's a little diagram of that. Basically, same as what I just drew. There's the Earth, and then you have the Moon, you have Mercury, Venus, then there's the Sun, Mars, uh, uh, it's Jupiter, Saturn, and then you have some others. This is the firmament with the stars attached to it, sort of like pinpricks uh, that are showing you the light of the eternal realm shining through the stars. Or maybe they're creatures. They believe the stars were, some people believe the stars were alive. They were just radically stable creatures. That's what Origen believed, and probably Plotinus. Okay, so what in the world does all this have to do with eschatology, our beliefs about the end? Well, the question is what does cosmology have to do with eschatology? Well, it turns out a lot. 
Generally speaking, elite Christians submerged in the Hellenistic milieu of the imperial period knew that transience was inferior to stability and that the present cosmos was inferior to the higher realm. There was just a sense about that. You just know it in your bones. Nobody, nobody comes out and says to you, hey, it's dumb to live on the earth. Wouldn't it be great if we were radically stable and living off in the pleroma, in the realm of fullness and eternality? No, that's not what they say. What they, they, just, they just know it in their bones. It's just obvious to them. It's just obvious. Everybody knows that. Come on. What's something that's obvious to us that is not really obvious? That the earth goes around the sun rather than the sun going around the earth. How you get sick from germs. Yeah, sick from germs, right? Uh, or let, me, let me go back to my sun one for a second. From the perspective of this planet, it appears the sun rises and the sun sets. But everybody knows that's not true. We just, we just all know that. We don't, I, we don't spend time thinking about it. We're just like, yeah, we know it's the earth spinning, right? The sun's not rising. The sun's not setting. The earth, everybody knows that, right? And if I said to you, well, prove it, you might have a hard time. And, and you would probably have to refer to someone else. You have to be like, well, the people that went in outer space, when they went there, they noticed the earth was spinning or something like that. And like, ah, uh, they probably didn't really. <laughs> but there's obviously a way to prove that, that the physicists and the, you know, Galileo and all these guys figured out, right? I don't know exactly how that's done, but this is just something that everybody knew in their bones, that change was bad, stability is good, and that we're in the lowest realm possible. And that everything else above us is better. And the higher you can go, the better it is. All right, this is Joseph W. Trigg. He writes, there, the worlds and human bodies, materiality, which made them subject to change, kept them from being an ultimate good because what is ultimately good is always the same. This is just common sense among educated ancient people. What is ultimately good is always the same. If it's good, it doesn't change. That's what they believed. Now, I've already mentioned this to you in our first lecture, which by now probably you don't even remember, so I'm just going to repeat it anyhow. <laughs> Eschatology is influenced by cosmogony and cosmology. Do you remember the difference? Cosmogony is your, what, what you think about the beginning of the cosmos, and cosmology is what you think the universe is like right now. How one conceives of the origin and present condition of the universe alters one's belief about the end. So cosmogony is what you believe about the origin and cosmology is what you believe about the present condition. What you think about the universe affects what you think about paradise in the end. And so here are these quotes I shared with you before. Pseudo-Barnabas in the early second century says, the Lord says, behold, I will make the last things as the first. Gospel of Thomas says, for the end will be where the beginning is. Origin of Alexandria says, for the end is always like the beginning. Paula Fredrickson writes, Many thinking Christians from the second century onward could not take seriously the proposition that lower material reality was the proper arena of redemption. Their grasp of the principles of philosophy made claims to physical redemption seem incoherent and ignorant. These Christians repudiated the idea of a fleshly resurrection and a kingdom of God on earth. <laughs> Love that quote. It's such a good quote. 
She says it as clear as that. You know, you know, it's like you're doing research, you're finding stuff, right? And then you, you're plugging along, and then you find some like big name scholar, and they're like, they say exactly what you've been trying to say the whole time, and you're like, yeah, Paula Fredrickson said it. So here you have it. Ancient Christians thought the idea of the kingdom was dumb because living in a lower realm forever seemed like prison, not paradise. As long as Christianity remained the faith of the peasants, you don't have this problem, right? So long as people who are not educated in Greek philosophy and Greek common sense, so to speak, among educated people. Oh, and to be educated, the, the word, um, okay, so this is the word scholi, right? Which uh, is the word from which we get scholar. Scholi, uh, from which we get the word scholar or the person who studies, right? It's their word for leisure, rest, ease, plenty of time, all right? So if you want to do education, if you want to get educated in the ancient world, you need some scholi. You need some leisure. You need to be wealthy enough that you don't have to work and that you have money to pay somebody to tutor you because there are no public institutions for such things. So who in the world is going to learn Greek philosophy? Who in the world is going to learn all this education? Crazy rich people. And that means since there's no public education, they're heavily influenced by the person they choose to educate. Yes, right. And so you don't end up having lots of teachers. You end up having one teacher who teaches you everything they know. For example, Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, Aristotle taught Alexander the Great and spread Greek philosophy and Greek philosophical ideals, ideals all over the world. So Aristotle was a personal tutor of Alexander the Great. So what am I saying? I'm saying, look, first century Christianity, where is it located? Mostly around Jerusalem, Antioch. You have some churches that move out right, like in Ephesus and Philippi into modern day, what we call Turkey and Greece and that sort of places, and then it's certainly in Rome. But Christianity is mostly among poor folks and especially slaves. Now, there are always going to be a few elite people, but the majority is from the peasants, which is why when people make fun of Christianity in the second century, they're like, oh, they're so gullible. Now, as Christianity spreads beyond the lower rungs of society, especially in the third century, the late second, early third century, you start picking up people like Clement of Alexandria. You start picking up people like Origen, also of Alexandria, uh, decades later. And you start picking up these thinkers that have had the classical education. Now they're like, all right, I hear what you're saying about Genesis, okay? And I see, I see this, this idea of the kingdom and the resurrection of the dead, but I just don't know if I can believe it because I just know in my bones this is how the world really is. And, and you want me to, to, to just stay down here forever in a physical body eating and drinking? I'm sorry, that's not going to work. So let's rework some of these ideas. Let's rework kingdom. It's called the kingdom of heaven, right? Well, we can work with that. 
Resurrection, that doesn't have to be a physical body, right? You can resurrect into a spiritual body and you start looking at 1 Corinthians 15, you're like, well, Paul says a spiritual body. Oh, well, maybe it's an orb shining light as opposed to two arms, two legs, taste buds, all that kind of stuff. And so that's where, that's where you really start running into the, the mutations. All right, so this is a paper I presented at a theological conference some years ago. And it, all right, so go to page eight, and I just want to read you the conclusion of this little essay. Although the science of antiquity pressured educated Christian thinkers to reject God's plan for the world, modern cosmology and metaphysics no longer privilege immutability over transience. If anything, due to Albert Einstein's work on relativity and subsequent advances in quantum theory in the 20th century, modern scientists regard radical immutability as incoherent. So in other words, everybody just knows in their bones today that stuff always changes. Rather than in the ancient times, there was a realm where stuff never changed and the goal is to get to that realm. Now today it's like, look, there is no other realm where stuff never changes. This is the realm and stuff always changes and it's relative to how fast you go and it depends on these little tiny interactions of electrons and protons and neutrons, right? Like we have a totally different worldview or cosmology today. Furthermore, on a social level, the green movement is inspiring people to live sustainably, exalting the earth as precious and worth saving. So in our culture today, people have this environmentalist mindset that say, or even from a more of a Christian perspective, a stewardship minds, mindset that says, look, the earth is a pretty nice place. We should probably take care of it, right? Whereas in, the, in their society, the earth is a place of total chaos and unpredictability and at any moment, the barbarians could break through the borders and kill us and rape us and take us away. That's their world. Our world is like, hey, it's, it's a nice place. We should take care of it. We should find ways to make, to preserve the world and to be kind to the world. How many environmental tragedies could have been avoided if the early church fathers had chosen to reject reigning paradigms of the scientific guild of their time and embrace the kingdom doctrine instead. If Western culture had found its roots in the soil of stewardship and creation care in anticipation of God's ultimate restoration of our planet, rather than the evacuationist theology well articulated by the words of the old hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, how much further ahead would humanity be in discovering and harnessing cleaner lifestyles and energy sources? Of course, we have no way of predicting what would have happened if Christians had courageously defied conventional common sense to hold fast to the teachings of Scripture, but we can at least learn a valuable lesson from their mistakes. What they did is they caved to the science of their day. They caved to the educated perspectives of the philosophers of their day. They said, I know that what Scripture says, but we're going to have to rework that in light of what science teaches us. That's what they said. And so that's what they did, and we lost the kingdom as a result. Nevertheless, reinventing, distorting, or dismissing millenarianism, belief in the kingdom, has much severer consequences than environmental rapacity. Renouncing the kingdom results in alienation from Jesus. This is a point I keep making, right? You can't understand Jesus without the kingdom. The king of the kingdom, his message of salvation. Even before the Romans crucified Jesus for claiming to be king of the Jews, he was known by his disciples as the Jewish Messiah, the one destined to rule the world from the throne of David. 
Later on, when Matthew and Luke wrote their respective Gospels, they emphasized Jesus' messianic office in their birth narratives, the former by detailing Jesus' genealogical royal pedigree, and the latter by including the words of the angel Gabriel. You remember that, right? Where he, the, Gabriel says, you're going to have a son, he's going to be great, he's going to sit on the throne of David and rule over Jacob forever. Last paragraph. To claim knowledge of Jesus without knowing that his destiny is to rule the world is like claiming a friendship with the President of the United States without re realizing his or her occupation. Jesus' anointing as the Davidic king was not some minuscule or insignificant detail, but something that defined him from his birth to his ministry to his death. Everything flowed from his identity as God's supreme representative who would one day rule the world. Furthermore, Jesus talked about the kingdom constantly, both when he was publicly proclaiming the gospel and when he was alone with his disciples. From picking 12 apostles to healing the sick and casting out demons, his whole ministry was saturated with kingdom illusions. One simply cannot know the historical Jesus, much less one who will, the one who will come again without understanding the kingdom of God, nor can one hope to grasp the gospel message without it. Although biblical scholars today generally recognize the centrality of, the, of millenarianism for Jesus, the average Christian is still blissfully unaware of Jesus' gospel and destiny. The kingdom remains obscure, while flitting off to the eternal realm enjoys near universal acceptance. It's a depressing ending, but I feel like it's true. <laughs> and so what are you going to do about it, dear class? We're going to get out there and share this message. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to this lecture. I Just to let you know, next week we have part two of the three main reasons why the kingdom was rejected. The kingdom is too hedonic, too pleasure-oriented, so stay tuned for that. Also, if you would like to read the paper I wrote for the theological conference back in 2012 on this subject, you can get that in the show notes for this episode or by just going to restitutio.org and clicking on articles, and you can read the entire paper, Rejecting the Kingdom for Being Too Crude. Additionally, the uh, good folks at 21st Century Reformation videoed me that year, so there's also a YouTube online of my talk from 2012. So if you want to search for Rejecting the Kingdom on YouTube, you should be able to find it that way, or I have a link in the notes for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.